come together and actually um, make me feel much the same, even though they're so distinctly different. The first one was I was on the Internet looking at um, a website that I like to uh, look at, and the other was, like I say, preparing this message. And the webs, and I will tell you how the emotion came together to connect them. But the first one that I'd like to tell you about is the website that is called the Virtual Wall. And it's about the 58,000 plus names that are on the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And I came across this one, and it was a picture of a young man. And what struck me about him was how young he was, how young he looked. And then I read what somebody had put on uh, his posting on this memorial. I did not know this gentleman, this young Marine. And as I read it to you, it says, I, I am not the author of it. I'm just reading it as it was put there. This is for Lance Corporal Michael James Wyman, Gun Squad, 3rd Platoon, D Company, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, 1st Marine Division. It says, Michael joined 3rd Platoon Delta Company, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, in September of 1968. I joined the platoon in December. Michael was an M60 machine gunner. If you aren't familiar with an M60 machine gunner, it's not a real new piece of technology at that time. It's big, it's heavy, weighs 23 plus pounds, but also fires at a rate of about 10 rounds a second, 600 times a minute. There are a number of slots within a Marine Rifle Battalion that present a great danger for those Marines who fill them than any other positions. The first, of course, is the leadership positions. Platoon commander, platoon sergeant, squad leaders. The next would be one of the radio men. The enemy knew that where there was a radio, there would also be a leader. The third, but usually the first and the priority of the enemy, was the machine gunner. The enemy feared the guns and tried to locate them and silence them as early as the battle in the battle as possible. On February 14, 1969, 3rd Platoon engaged the enemy in fierce combat, which was close to being hand-to-hand. Mike's fellow gunner, Larry Luby, was killed in the initial contact and was entrenched from the entrenched enemy. Our platoon commander, James Witt, and his radio man, George Kuma, went down. James's wounds would prove fatal. Mike moved forward at the platoon and fired from the hip, taking on the enemy. He was hit twice and went down. When I was able to get to his location, he yelled for me to put his gun in his hands. Because of his injuries, he could not reach his weapon after falling. I remember that we nearly had to pry the weapon from his hands prior to his being medevaced. Mike was given the Silver Star for his actions that day. Mike was a young, the youngest Marine in our company. I have spoken many times over the past couple of years with Diane Britton, Mike's sister, and she told me that Mike had wanted to be a Marine from the time he was 9 or 10. I look back at Mike's photo from that time, and he looked so young. He was. 
I never knew Mike as well as his fellow gun squad members, but I do remember him as a good Marine who never refused to follow through on any mission that came our way. We must never forget the sacrifice that Mike made, or should we ever let his memory wane? Scepter 5. Michael James Wayne, date of birth, was 26 August 1950. Wounded in action, 14 February 1969. Died of wounds, 15 February 1969. That's what I read. I was studying for this message. And the text that I was given as we've been looking at the life of Jesus was what was Jesus' mission? We think of people that serve us in the military, policemen, firemen, and when they are willing to give their lives for, for us to keep us safe, we can become emotional. As I was looking and preparing, I found that it waned in comparison to what I was thinking about, what Jesus knew was his mission. We must understand that how gallantly this Marine lived and died and those that have gone before him in similar fashion do not compare with what the death of Jesus Christ did for us. I would like us now to turn to our scripture. We will be looking at Matthew 16, verses 21 through 28. And what we want to see today as we've been looking at the life of Jesus Christ and leading us to the cross is his mission. I read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised and Peter took aside, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father, and when he and he, when he will repay each person according to what he has done, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The first thing that we want to see out of the scripture reading in verse 21 is exactly that, the mission. What is the mission? The answer is, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to the earth to suffer on a cross 
for our salvation and be raised from the dead. That's exactly what the scripture says. That's exactly what Jesus was telling his disciples. But did they truly understand what he was telling them? This is not the first time that Jesus took on this task to inform them. It wasn't so much that he was trying to give them advanced knowledge, but he had to have them understand completely what it was for. He had told them before of the bridegroom being among them and the bridegroom would leave. He also had said that it was like Noah being in that fish for three days and three nights. But this is the first time that specifically he has said exactly what would happen. That is his mission. But how do we know that this was supposed to come about? In Genesis 3, it said that when sin entered the world, God said, there will be a time, Satan, when I will crush your head. You may bruise his heel, but I will be victorious. Isaiah the prophet carried on and was telling Israel what would happen and that a Savior would have to come about. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Folks, this isn't just a prediction. This isn't like the weatherman takes all the information that he has and then says something that he thinks is going to happen. This is foretelling exactly fact. It will come about. It reveals God's plan before the formation of the earth. Jesus the Christ knew his purpose, what his mission would be. And now it is time that the disciples know and understand exactly what that mission will be. In verses right before that, Jesus had said to his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And the answers were uh, a prophet, a, a teacher, may, maybe Elijah. But then Jesus changed it a little bit and he said, Who do you think that I am? And Peter, answering for the group and for himself, he said, You are the Christ. And Jesus said to him, You are correct. And I know that you had to have that answer given to you by my Father because men could not reveal that to you. At that time, Peter had a grasp of who Jesus was. He said he was the Savior that was supposed to enter this world. He called him the Christ. But Jesus didn't stop there. He kept telling them 
time and time again in his ministry that he was going to die. In Matthew 20, 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They have to know, we have to know, that Jesus was the most important example that we could ever have. He was a mentor. He was one that tells us how to live. But that isn't the mission of why he came to this world. He came for one reason, and that was to die for our sin. The English bishop John Ryle wrote on matters of church government and forms of worship, men may differ from us and yet reach heaven in safety. On matter of Christ's atoning death as the way of peace, truth is only one. If we are wrong here, we are ruined forever. Error on many points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's death is a disease of the heart. Here let us t- take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all our ho- hope must be that Christ has died for us. Give up that doctrine and we have no solid hope at all. Christ's mission was to die. Christianity without a cross is worthless. The scripture goes on to say in verses 22 and 23 exactly that there would be opposition to this mission. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God but on things of man. I I want us to get a a mental picture of exactly that day, if if we could witness it firsthand. There's two people involved here. There's Peter and there's Jesus. Peter just got done saying that he recognized him as the Savior, the Christ, and the Son of God. And Peter takes him, physically takes him, and pulls him aside and says, no, you've got this wrong. This isn't going to happen to you. And I'm going to see to it that it doesn't. Can you imagine what was maybe going through Peter's mind? I mean, is the... Today we would say, was he on steroids? Had he been getting buffed up and he thought he was now the enforcer and he was going to take on whoever it was that was going to come against this Jesus? Did he now have access to a sword? We would see later on somebody did. He was willing to alter what God said was going to happen. I must die. Listen to what was written about this situation. Peter's strong will and warm heart linked to his ignorance produced a shocking bit of arrogance 
he confesses that Jesus is the Messiah and then speaks in a way implying that he knows more of God's will than the Messiah himself. See, I think there's two types of opposition to God's mission, to Jesus' mission. And the first one, Peter has now bought into and become an unwilling partner with the devil. The devil said that he did not want to see a savior succeed. Peter is saying, I do not want to see this savior succeed. What I'm going to do is I'm going to offer you the world without a cross. All you have to do is take it. Basically, isn't that what the devil said to Jesus when he was tempting him? You know, when you think about that, how did the devil ever think that all of the world was his to offer anyway? God made it all. It was all his to begin with. But you could have a world. We can have the world. But we can't have a Savior at the cross. Peter was doing the same. The answer that Jesus gave them was the same. To the devil, he said, Away from me, Satan. To Peter, he said, Get behind me, Satan. Back to that mental picture that we are having. Jesus probably physically turned around, put Peter behind him, and said, You are a hindrance to me. Other interpretations of the Bible said, You are a stumbling stone to me. If you are in front of me, I'm going to fall over you. I can't allow that to happen, Jesus is saying. There will be nothing that will be in opposition to what I do. Peter went so quickly from being the rock that Jesus said he was going to build his church on to a stumbling stone. Jesus himself was going to be the cornerstone of all of Christianity, of how we will be made right with God himself. He will be the capstone that will be talked of in the future. Peter himself, in his days of boldness, will go before those that put Jesus to to death and say, The stone that you rejected was the capstone. But there's another opposition, I believe. It's kind of a then and now situation. And that is being exactly right one minute and terribly wrong the next. And Peter's a great example of it. But we can do that also. If we are not grounded... And exactly the truth of the gospel message, we can be in opposition to the will of God and his mission today. We must understand exactly what happens for salvation, that Jesus had to come and die on a cross and raise again. Peter, in his boldness, would then go on to write, The stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And the salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to men 
by which we must be saved. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to our sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. If we are to be right, we have to be right in spiritual things completely. We must be equipped to understand what the gospel is, and not only for our own salvation, but to tell and to speak of it to others. Anything less than that is an opposition. Continual growth in study and Bible reading, growing in wisdom and understanding, should be our fervent prayer and asking the Holy Ghost to equip us. And two things must be clear. Jesus died to save us from our sin, and there is no salvation apart from him. If we do not understand that, if we do anything other than that, we run the risk of someday standing before God and him saying to you, to me, depart from me, I didn't know you. We see Jesus' mission, the opposition, and we also see that Jesus taught the disciples the way of the cross. Verses 24 through 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of of man coming in his kingdom. How many things can a person really learn in one day? This is a continuation of Jesus talking to his disciples, asking them who he is, telling them what's going to happen, and at the same time saying, I'm going to use this time to also teach you about what it means to follow me. He and his disciples must go to the cross. He tells him that. Not in the same way and not for the same reason, but it has to happen. That's what it says. We're going to take up our cross. Jesus realizes, knows, and we know that he went to the cross for the forgiveness of sins, to make us right with God, because we could not do it on our own. That is totally Jesus' job. It has nothing to do with anything that we do. But it still says that we must take up our cross. For the disciples in us, it means self-denial, suffering, rejection, maybe even death. Nothing less than what Jesus experienced himself. There's actually very little following of Christ himself 
happening in, unfortunately, too many churches today. We want prosperity. We want victory. We want a Jesus that's a good example. We want somebody that we can look up to and that was really an all-around good person. But we don't want a suffering Savior. That's a hard sell for people to hear. That there's going to be suffering. That there's a price to be paid. That our sin carries that much burden. That something happened, has to happen to do an atoning work for it. Can't we all just get along? No. There has to be something done about sin. And it has to be done by Jesus Christ. Christ's death is of value only to those who are willing to die to themselves and follow him. So what are the things that the disciples were supposed to understand and learn from Jesus speaking these words to them? First of all, they and we shall understand self-denial. Self-seeking is the opposite of self-denial. It is actually at the root of sin. We want what we want. It doesn't depend on whose it is, but we want. And it started in chapter 3 of Genesis in the book of the Garden of Eden, in the book of Genesis. But the devil said, Did he really say that, that you aren't supposed to take of that? If you want that, you can have it. Self-seeking. It was Satan's problem from the beginning. It's what got him in trouble with God to begin with. And I don't make light of that, but he was released from heaven in God's presence because of it. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to soul to the far reaches of the pit. Jesus has done the opposite. Instead of exalting himself, he humbled himself. He was the example. What he was telling his disciples at that very time as to what you're going to have to do to follow me, I am going to show you with example because I'm doing it in submission to my father. In fact, when he gave the disciples his prayer, it wasn't my father, it was our father. We're included in that statement. He is our father. And Jesus was the one that was willing to take on the burden, placed there the responsibility and in submission to the father himself. 
Was this easy? Because God, because Jesus was God? Well, if it was, we wouldn't see in the scriptures where he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his father. And the sweat was like blood. And an angel came and ministered to him while his disciples slept. Not only is there self-denial, but we also have to take up a cross. We're saying no to ourselves. We're saying yes to God. In some ways, this has been made light of, taking up our cross. We have that flat tire when we go out to start the car in the morning to go to work, and you just say, well, it's just one of those little crosses I have to bear. Well, that isn't where Christianity is at because God's word says that all of those things, can, the rain can fall on the just and the unjust. What separates them is that we are to surrender completely to Christ as he did to the cross and be willing to do completely the will of God. And we must do the same. Yes, when we do that, it's going to be inconvenient. Yes, it's going to maybe hit us in our pocketbook. Yes, it's going to be that we will have setbacks and trials and crosses, but it is the cross that we bear. Essentially, taking up our cross means that accepting whatever God has given us and then offering it back to him for his glory. And also, we must follow Jesus. Jesus is not just a door that we pass through. Jesus is actually our path. We are following in his footsteps. It's a continuation day after day of our life and will not be completed until we are in his presence. Removed of sin, we will still be in his path. God's word says, his word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. My heart is set on keeping your decrees to the very end. The last thing that I want us to see in this piece of scripture is that there was a reward. Jesus talks about it not only here, but Old Testament also, what he will do for his people because they are mine, because they are faithful, they will be given rewards. We will be in his favor. We do not do what we do to seek these rewards. They are what comes as a natural flow from a loving God because he has brought us to himself. Let's not get the order reversed. We do nothing that impresses or brings favor to God. He is the one that truly rewards us. We live in a day when too much of even the evangelical world wants a domesticated Jesus. He blesses, he fills, he thrills, he heals, and strengthens his followers, but does not insist on a cross. 
We need the genuine Jesus who demands his followers to die to self and actually follow him. We must understand Jesus' mission was his death, which paid for our righteousness. There was a time when Peter did not understand, as we do not also. But, li- but, live, but lives of faithfulness to Jesus Christ and the gospel message shows we understand. We must take up the cross and follow Jesus. I pray that this is the heart of every person here today. May the power of the Holy Spirit be working in each of us this day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by the mission of your Son and his obedience to your will. I pray, Lord, that our hearts might not be stiff like that of Peter's when he heard that news. I pray that we understand that truly it was your work that brought righteousness that before the beginning of time my name was on his lips and I thank you for that Lord I thank you that you have allowed us this day to continue to understand better the atoning work of your son Jesus Christ I pray Lord that if there are those in our midst of today Lord that truly have not come to that realization yet that you continue to soften their hearts to remove the scales from their eyes. Thank you for being a merciful and just God. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.